0: Are you satisfied with your understanding of sustainability? If not, like me, imagine a journey together, a pluralistic one with innovators, startup, academia, NGO, all together looking for solutions to the greatest challenge of our time. I'm Samuel Tini, and this is the Sustainability Journey. Welcome to another episode, and today we are going to discuss the connection and the work about. Technology, sustainability, and we do it with a recognized expert, somebody that has been a change maker at the forefront of the field for many years. And now she is the Chief Sustainability Officer and Senior Managing Director at Avelli Investment, Lucas Jopa. Lucas, pleasure of having you here. You are really, I'm really humbled, such an high-profile guest on my podcast. Yeah, no,
1: thanks so much for the opportunity for a conversation.
0: And Lucas, you have an impressive war. You have your background in ecology. You have You know, you have been at the forefront of EI, Microsoft and the work on sustainability. But the usual question for our guest, who is Lucas? I mean, as a world leader in sustainability, what is your background?
1: Yeah. Who is Lucas? I'm just a guy who cares a lot about the environment and the planet that we live on and and the people that I share this planet with. You know, I um, today, I think a lot of people see me as a technology guy and a sustainability guy. but Growing up, I was really just kind of a nature kid. And I grew up in a place where nature, the environment, and the economy were really tightly intertwined, in a place that was really heavily dependent on natural resources and the climate systems that, you know, stabilized and managed those natural resources. And and so growing up i was just very aware from an early age how interconnected the environment and the economy actually are you know i was um kind of a child of my time so i i kind of was born into the technology and the software age and it became you know an important perspective or important part of my perspective of how humans are impacting the environment, both positively and negatively, and ways that technology can help people have a more holistic, sustainable, you know, relationship with this planet that that we all call home.
0: I want to pick up something that you have said. So really this, what is interesting me is this intersection of technology and sustainability. As you said, you are a kid that was in nature and somebody who cares about nature, but not only in that, you have been a successful researcher, you have a wonderful background on ecology and studies so how do you see this uh, these two worlds talking to each other i got
1: into computing because i felt like it was becoming almost impossible to talk about the environment and to talk about ecology without using computing as some sort of you know translation or reading service i was really interested in you know, very simple questions like do protected areas protect or, you know, how fast are species going extinct or how many species are there in the world? Just really basic questions that I think any kid would probably ask themselves. But once you start actually going down the process of trying to answer those questions, what you realize is that the data sets that you need access to are are massive. The, The mathematics and the statistics that you need to Perform are pretty sophisticated. And trying to do all of that on pen and paper is tedious at best and impossible at worst. And so that's where my computing kind of background began. I'm just trying to ask these questions. And then I started realizing that you know, computing technology wasn't just about helping me ask questions about the environment. There's actually this really important intersection there where, of course, technology allows us to better understand, monitor, model, and ultimately manage Earth systems, but also the infrastructure and the software and solutions that that run on top of that infrastructure are increasingly part of, you know, the overall economic problem from a sustainability perspective. So that's where this all kind of got really interesting for me. And I just really wanted to make sure that the positive side of technology significantly outweighed the negative side. You know, you wanna maximize the upside and minimize the downside. And and that's what I've been basically trying to focus my career on in tech and
0: sustainability ever since. And I think you have reached the peak like you say, the Mount Everest of uh, this uh, connection? Because as you have been at the forefront of sustainability tech, in fact, I'm referring of your role at Microsoft, first chief environmental officer. When you think about Microsoft, everybody's thinking about Windows, who so is thinking about, you know, Office. So how did you shape the development of this sustainability strategy in, in a tech company?
1: Your question about reaching the peak, I, I definitely... Don't think we've even come close. I think we've reached the peak in the sense of, you know, that experience when you're out hiking and you crest some peak and you think I've reached the top and then you see the real top, (laughs) you know, miles ahead and you realize, oh, okay, still have a long way to go. That's kind of the way I I feel about my career for sure. It's the way I feel about the world's actions on sustainability. I mean, to your point, my most recent um, past before before joining Covelli Investments was as first a researcher uh, in Microsoft Research, then the first chief environmental scientist for the company, and then the first chief environmental officer for the company, and helped um, helped the organization put in place a lot of its current sustainability work, including uh, a commitment. Uh, that you refer to to be carbon negative to for Microsoft to reduce its emissions by half or more and then physically remove from the rest from the atmosphere and by, all by 2030. And then from 2030 to 2050 to also go back in time and remove all the emissions they're associated with since their founding as well. And so that was what I consider to be a huge first summit for the world. Right. It was a big company with an ambitious but doable plan. And it showed the world, in large part, just because Microsoft is such a big and important company that when it does big and important things, people notice. It showed the world that taking action, you know, wasn't crazy, that big, mature, you know, grown-up, sophisticated companies could do this. It helped. Opened the door for lots of other big companies to come in and it really kind of changed the baseline on what, you know, corporate sustainability could look like yet. It was, you know, far from the peak, I think, first and foremost, there's a lot of challenges ahead to actually achieving those goals that the company has. I, for one, feel incredibly confident that Microsoft will achieve those goals. I definitely never would have left my position if I had questions about that, but there's still challenges to be had. However, the next highest one is showing that what Microsoft did and is doing wasn't a fluke, that it's a strategy that could be shared by lots of different companies of different shapes and sizes, even if they don't have necessarily the you know, market penetration, or the, you know, the balance sheet of a Microsoft, I talk a lot about how the world needs to normalize net zero. And that, for me, is the real slog to the summit, it's, you know, any company of any shape and size, hopefully, that it can see a pathway for its products and services to be part of a net zero climate, kind of economy so that it's not just a punitive measure, you know, that everybody has to do this thing to decarbonize their economies, but also that there could be a profit making and and growth opportunity in that space as well.
0: I can see this is the way and also now I think in your new roles and the other role we discussed, that is also your agenda and the work that you are trying to do. And But I'm sure that going back a bit in the Microsoft role, uh, many of the people in the audience would like to know what is possible to share, of course, in a podcast, some of the key insights that you had from your research on climate change, biodiversity, ecology, when you were there, and how these findings have influenced the company's sustainability initiatives. Yeah, I think
1: that I know other people may have a different way into this conversation than I do, but I think one of the key lessons that... I learned from and this was, you know, thinking about climate inside of a corporation is that this is really a math problem. You know, it's it's an accounting problem. Now, i I get it. There's tons of people that are saying, you know that are all, all up in arms right now. Look, you know, I get it. My background's in environmental science, ecology, the complexities, the crazy interdependencies of, you know, ecosystems and the species and their climates and the bios. Okay. So I get all that, but from a corporate climate perspective, this is a math problem. It's the ledger balancing problem. It's saying, well, we are putting carbon into the atmosphere. That's bad. And carbon shorthand for all sorts of global warming, potential greenhouse gases. But we're putting carbon in the atmosphere That's bad. And we need to balance out the amount of carbon in the atmosphere so that all of the emissions that humans put in, humans must take out. And then it makes it easy for a company, particularly an engineering company like Microsoft was to say, oh, okay." like so now yes there's societal concerns there's ethics and there's morals and there's all these other things but microsoft's an engineering company so okay we finally gotten the problem down to something that we can think about engineering and again i know that's a sometimes controversial thing to say to engineer you know our way out of this but i'm using it kind of in the english language sense of of like, okay, we've got to figure out a way, we have to engineer a way to reduce our emissions as much as possible, and then to physically remove the rest. And so first, I think there's the, the the three lessons I just want to share. One, it's just a math and an accounting problem. If you can break it down to its base level and then just start working from a balance sheet perspective, all of those other issues get wrapped up in it. The second thing, is that technology can be a significant part of the solution. I think we looked at new products that that, uh, Microsoft was putting in place, things like the Microsoft cloud for sustainability or the planetary computer, right? That there were things holding back, holding companies back from being able to treat this as a math problem. Well, if you're going to treat this as a math and accounting problem, then you need like a digital ledger technology. By that, I don't mean like blockchain or whatever. I just mean literally a ledger technology that is run on digital infrastructure. And that's so Microsoft started building something like that because it knew its customers needed to do that. And then also, if we are going to better monitor, model, and ultimately manage our natural systems, then we need to be able to compute in the native data types that we experience our our world in that that kind of nature exists in which is space and time and that's actually those are data types that the modern cloud particularly if you go back two three four years like the modern cloud didn't do super well like space and time you know um so so we built you know started building something called the planetary computer to really change the way that data was accessed and and the. Uh, native ability to do, to do spatial and temporal computing. And then the third lesson that I really kind of took away, learned there and took away is that the money is starting to move and that what I believe will be viewed as the most consequential decade in technology, which was basically the last decade in the tech sector where they built this incredible computing substrate called the cloud and now yes crazy stuff with ai is happening blah blah blah. everyone's going to say that's the most and i'm like yeah but the point is that's all just building on top of this like fundamentally new infrastructure that was developed over the past decade so we went through what i believe will be viewed as the most consequential decade in technology and we're The other most important economic sector finance is just starting its most kind of consequential decade, the mobilization of capital into a net zero future. So I've always looked at the world of like, yes, you know, environment and economy. And if I break that down one more, it's basically, you know, the three major engines of of modern economy in my mind. Are the environment, finance, and technology, and so the money is starting to move in the finance space. I think that is going to be to lead to the most consequential decade in finance, at least for for our lifetimes. With the people listening to this, those are kind of the three lessons. It's a math problem. Uh, you know, technology can be part of the solution. It needs to be part of the solution if we're ever going to solve the math problem, and that you know the money is starting to move, and uh, and that's going to be a massive accelerant towards the world getting to net zero.
0: And thank you, Lucas, for these three key points. They also confirm some of the discussion we had with other guests, especially in the finance world is really starting to move. And really technology, it's one of the allies. Some people also discussed about the engineering and the work. So we need to industrialize restoration, one of the previous episodes we had. Now, this jargon is moving because, of course, it's more and more people, especially in the finance, they are moving in the sector. And you discussed about in the second point the ally, one of the strongest allies, the technology to be part of the solution. And you haven't mentioned it, so you know, you even mentioned it. So everybody now is excited about the AI, which is not only the generative things that we see the generative AI, the chat GPT being barred and the others, but of course, there are many utilisation, And you have been also at the forefront of that with your program, EI for Art program, and the work that you have done to really have technology and technology-enabled solution as part of the support for solving the global environmental challenges. So how do you think this EI and EI revolution can help address our planetary crisis?
1: Well, I think that ultimately it's going to be kind of at the core of how we address our sustainability issues. And I say that just because sustainability and climate is kind of, you know, everything, everywhere, all at once point of view. And we've got to manage and transform incredibly diverse sets of systems all at the same time that themselves have incredible interdependencies. And that type of computing, is a type of computing that the human brain isn't super good at. To be able to ingest simultaneously, you know, massive amounts of data from incredibly different and diverse (laughs) inputs and connect patterns across all of that kind of instantaneously humans are really good about inferring the outputs of that sort of, you know, and making predictions, all sorts of that sort of thing. And the intuition side of, of the human brain is really good, but like, let's just think about something like satellite imagery, right? Humans conceptually are capable of looking at a picture taken from space at a fine enough resolution and zooming in and you know, if given the right you know hue saturation values, et cetera, et cetera, can tell, "Oh, that's a car, or that's a tree, or that's a place where a tree used to be, but was cut down because I'm looking at two different images. But the globe, the earth, is a very big place. You know, we're not capable of looking at that level of introspection at the whole earth at one meter resolution at the same time, right. And so we can do things that allow us to do what humans do, but, you know, at greater spatial and temporal scale. So that's fantastic. We can also do things that humans can't do. Like we can see with satellites, for instance, dimensions that humans can't see. We can use LIDAR. We can use different forms of radar. We can use different forms of sensing to see into the soil, to see chemicals in the atmosphere, to see things that biologically, you know, we can't see. And that's what I think is so powerful about AI, because it's going to allow us to do what we do at speed and scale that we can't, and it's going to allow us to do things that we can't do, like see things in in a different way. And it just, it it reminds me, this AI for Earth program, it was started in part because I had this kind of deep-seated frustration or dissatisfaction with where the conversation about AI was going. And it's been interesting because that conversation has just accelerated in a direct, in that same kind of non-helpful direction, I believe. And that's this, this like very introspective, narcissistic, you know, existential worry that we have about AI worry that, you know, oh, how did it do it? We don't understand how it did it. Well, we don't even understand how we write paragraphs, you know, like it's, but all of this time, it's like, we're building systems to do what we can already do. And then we're worrying about what the implications of like replacing ourselves might be. When in fact, the most powerful component of technology innovation is helping humans do things they can't do. And one of the things that we can't do is we cannot monitor and we cannot model environmental systems at the scale at which they exist without the help of computing. And then when you get to how should we manage it, then you can think of a more like co-pilot type role for computers to then be able to say, hey, here are some suggestions for, you know, levers that you might be able to pull, et cetera. So AI for Earth was all about showing the world that there were other, maybe more fruitful uses of artificial intelligence. And to show that cloud computing and modern technologies could actually be helpful. And that's that's what the AI for Pro- Earth program did. It gave out grants to Hundreds of organizations across, you know, over the across the majority of countries in the world. And and the number one lesson that we learned was kind of just a confirmation of what we knew going in, which is that the modern cloud was not as well built for solving environmental issues as it could be that there was basically what I called this missing layer of being able to natively handle space and time and deploy the most modern AI innovations on environmental data. And so that's where the AI for Earth program then kind of morphed into this thing called the planetary computer, where it was actually saying, hey, we're actually gonna build a new substrate in the cloud for people to be able to do this monitoring, modeling and managing. And, and I think that that's just a very you know logical sequence of go out with an idea, work with a ton of people across the world in diverse backgrounds and settings, see how they get on, have joint conversations, come back and say, okay, what's
0: the rate limiting step? Okay, let's build a solution. And nowadays in the news, we get a lot of concerns of public opinion, editorials, discussion about we can make... AI sustainable. Some people, they have huge articles saying, you know, it's waste. There is a lot of problematic in sustainability. So how we can build a sustainable EI, sustainable tech infrastructure that minimizes environmental impact?
1: Well, the nice thing about technology and computing is that you can break the carbon problem kind of in half. One is about what's the input to run the computing. Energy, electricity, and then what's the hardware? You know, and the and the carbon associated with um, with building that hardware. I won't focus on the hardware as much, except to say that there's been lots of advances um, in how. I mean, one of the one of the greatest you know parts about cloud computing is just how efficiently. They can increase the uh, the utilization rate of of servers when you share across you know multiple organizations and individuals et cetera et cetera. So you want to make sure that you're using utilizing the hardware that you have as much as possible. You want to make sure that you're doing all of the things that you possibly can to maximize the the reuse and next best use and all of that. And you know there's a lot of low hanging fruit in the cloud companies, including Microsoft, are doing incredibly. Um, interesting things like Microsoft set up these cloud circularity centers where they they have ai systems that you know are monitoring and tracking every bit of hardware and figuring out what it's going to do next and how to maximize the life of it but if we leave that aside the real problem for you know this for computing is is where the energy's coming from but the good news is that we actually know how to access almost infinite amounts of zero carbon energy through wind solar hydro you know fission maybe fusion you know all of these things and the market is there for it and they're now you know on a unit economic basis out competing you know high emitting sources of energy and that's fantastic because i believe that at the core of any net zero global economic transition is basically a four-part plan of decarbonize the world's grids and then race to electrify, digitize, and then ultimately virtualize as much of the world's physical economy as humanly possible. So that is perfect because we know that we can, the inputs to that can be driven to zero carbon. And there is a a bottleneck at the moment. There isn't enough renewable energy um, on the grids, et cetera but i would just posit that all of these conversations about you know ai is unsustainable look at the emissions associated with ai look at the emissions associated with streaming you know movies look at the emissions associated with playing games look at the emissions associated with but at the same time a lot of those people saying that are the ones that so strongly agree that you know electrifying digitizing and virtualizing like is the path forward so I try to remind people like if digitizing the economy is a significant component of the solution set, then we have to be okay with the energy use of the world. In fact, the energy use of the world is going to go up. It's going to have to go up drastically, dramatically if we are going to switch from analog to digital systems. If we're going to decarbonize those things, then you can't vilify the use of energy while also claiming that electrification is, you know, one of the key points to solving the climate crisis. You can't do both those things at the same time. Now, I get where people are coming from. They're saying, oh, yeah, well, you're talking about an idealized grid. And the point is, yes, but how do you get there? Well, You put increasing demand on the energy systems, and that's one of the things that's happening right now, particularly here in the U.S. We've had flat or actually stagnating energy demand for a very long time. It's one of the reasons that our infrastructure has not been innovated on and et cetera, et cetera. Well, what's happening now? Demand is going through the roof. In fact, cloud suppliers are outstripping the availability of publicly available infrastructure in the energy infrastructure space. Well, that But those same companies are the ones that have the most advanced renewable energy goals. So now you have a market demand to grow. You have a market demand to ensure that that growth is done in a decarbonized way. And that's all in the direction of electrification of our economy, which is at the core of a net zero transition plan. So you might be arguing that teaching an AI system to recognize cats in YouTube videos isn't a socially, you know, beneficial, you know, socially optimized way to use any particular compute resource. That's a different conversation, one that I'm happy to have and get. In, basically meaningless arguments with all my friends about, you know, about what we think is useful, but that's a social conversation. That's not about like, AI is bad for the environment because it's using computing, which uses electrons, which is generated by thermal coal, for instance. It's like, okay, but what if I remove that thermal coal part of the equation? Do you still have a problem with that? Do you have an environmental problem with that? Or do you have a social problem with that? Let's separate those two things.
0: I really appreciated also the the wide and span of the argument and the work because sometimes we get narrow focused on that particular issue without seeing the broader picture and the transformation implied. And my subsequent question, it goes back to your third point, you know, the impact of finance and the work on investments, also to get and to help making money flow to this market opportunity, the one you were just discussing. And this is also the work that you are doing with Avail Investments and the work also to accelerate technology and investment in addressing the the, the environmental crisis. So can you explain a bit the role of the two and a bit if you can give some insights of your work that you are doing there to solve this issue?
1: I believe we're just starting the most consequential decade for, for finance. And that's, I believe that because we're going to see An unprecedented mobilization of of financial resources to help the economy transition to a net zero economy. I think what's going to happen is a lot of investors are going to make money by investing in the infrastructure that decarbonizes our economy. We were just talking about the energy infrastructure, the grids, et cetera, et cetera, and other stuff as well. Uh, low-carbon concrete seal, you know, all these things. People are going to make money doing that, and that's fantastic. I, we The world needs those people to make that money to sh- send positive economic signals. But then, what's going to happen over the next 50 years is what kind of happened over the past 100 years, um, which is that the software is going to come in and help manage that infrastructure it's going to help design the infrastructure it's going to help build the infrastructure and it's going to help manage you know run and operate that that infrastructure and other economic systems as well and so that for me is this huge you know i'm a software guy so i joined Haveli investments were where software investors um, enterprise software investors, I believe that there's two things that need to get done, and we actually spell it out in in a strategy that we that we have in our company called Sustainability Squared or S squared, and and so that's what I basically you know focus on at Haveli is 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 helping execute across this strategy that we have inside the firm that we call Sustainability Squared or S squared, and the reason it's called Sustainability Squared is there's two S components. There's the um, there's the, you know, investing in the software companies in their operations, no matter what type of, of services that they're selling, as well as looking specifically at companies that are building sustainability software solutions. And so, you know, our ambition is to show that we can profitably, you know, operate in this space while, working towards an ambition to have our portfolio of companies be net zero from fund one. That's what I would love to see happen is from you know, the first company to exit our first fund, they do so um, as a net zero company and, and every other company follows in their footsteps. Look, we'll see if that's possible, but that's what I wake up every day trying to get done. And so because ultimately that's what we need. We need every company, every organization running as a net zero organization, and so I really feel motivated to try to prove that software companies of different shapes and sizes can do that. I'm also very motivated to show that there are profitable software solutions in the sustainability space and so i look after that aspect of, of of our investment strategy as well as we look across all of enterprise software i'm very motivated to find a few you know very you know motivational gems that that we can uh, invest in and 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 show that this is a significant area of of growth for for the
0: economy and i think from what you said and the insights you have shared the digitization is really part of that so software company are really at the forefront of this war so it's your, your work is really precious to get them to be net zero and sustainable from the day one so not just you know after after the time so that is that is really really important and you know we will talk a lot but i'm sure i, I mean i can say already that we will see also Maybe in one year or so, we can have a second episode just to see where you have reached in your work and your quest you know, for the sustainable company and the, the change makers that are really solving solutions. So I want now to go a bit broader uh, spectrum of, uh, of our questions. So just from your observatory, since you have been at the forefront, you are a technology leader. So which are the trends? And a bit we have already touched on that that you see in the field of ecology, environmental research, and also which are the trends that are really now that they might shape our understanding to global challenges in the next decade?
1: The substrate of the economy, the cloud, is increasingly moving towards net zero operations. And so the foundation of digital economy is going to be built on a much lower carbon basis than computing otherwise was. I think it's fantastic. When you look at you know, the obvious examples of of Microsoft or Amazon or Google or Apple, and you look at, you know, not only are these companies, some of the biggest, most successful companies in the world, they're also the companies with some of the most ambitious sustainability work. And so that is just this huge sectoral, you know, trend. There's also the inputs that are going into those companies, you know, here in the U.S., for instance, there's more energy projects in the permitting pipeline, than there is electricity on the grids today. And something like 97% or something of those permitting of those projects in the permitting pipeline are renewable energy projects. So the market is primed to deliver the low to no carbon energy that the this digital economy requires. Now. There's a lot of permitting reform. There's a lot of like nuts and bolts logistics of how this is actually going to happen and roll out. But here in the U.S., for instance, if you look at like the uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, and and all of the work, the investments that are going in there, I think we're gonna we're gonna find our way through because that money has to has to get deployed into the economy. And then the last thing I would just say is that our ability to you know people's kind of minds are blown that like ai innovation can now write them an email or whatever like where their minds really should be blown and where i think people are just going to be really taken by surprise over the next few years is how advanced and how much more we will advance our ability to monitor the state of the world's environmental systems and that is going to usher in a whole new era of accountability and responsibility and regulatory requirements, et cetera, et cetera. And so those three things, they all have computing kind of or are, are related, but like that's where I see kind of the global economy going. I think it's such an exciting time to be. Alive and operating for so many reasons, but for one, you know, in particular, I look like you go back into like your first economics class, right? They teach you the four factors of production, our land, labor, you know, entrepreneurship, capital and entrepreneurship. And and what's interesting about that construct is that as our economies have been built, we've always assumed Infinite supply of "quote unquote" land, i.e., the benefits that nature provides are infinite, an ever-growing body or pool of labor, and then where we've really, you know, worked is how do you build like capital, you know, physical plants and facilities, such, and how do you use entrepreneurship to like take land and labor and build that capital? Well, three things are are happening right now. One, land is under fundamental pressure. The expectation of infinite supply is gone, and in fact, it's in declining supply. Labor in large parts of the world is in decline as well, with population growth slowing. But we have this new form of capital called software, which is the most, you know, as 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 uh, the CEO of Microsoft Satya Nadella wants to say, like, is the most... Uh, malleable technology that we've ever invented, and it's the most accelerative and empowering for entrepreneurship, because you can have an idea and you can institute it. And so what we need to do over the you know coming decades is we have to figure out how modern capital software and other forms of capital and modern entrepreneurship can pick up the slack for slowing availability of labor and declining. Availability of land, natural resources, and and its environmental uh, inputs into economic systems. So that's super exciting. Like that calls for like global scale innovation. Anybody who's in that space should should be stoked to get up and go to work every day.
0: It is a crucial decade. The our decade is the day that, especially the next decade, is the one we are going to shape the future of art. Maybe for the next centuries. So that is, as you say, the super exciting moment to be here and make the right choices, and also using technology and the software and the workers playing a, a huge role. Especially as you said, land is no longer actually planetary boundaries are are already been passed and tipping point are passed. So we need really to work. And I, I would love to discuss hours with you because we have such an insightful discussion. But. We have to go to a closing, but of course, I'm already booking you for the second part the next year to see where Avelia has gone. And the question we always ask our guests, our change makers, is to give some advice. So, from our audience that is listening to us all over the world, so as I say, from India to West Indies, from uh, to from South Africa to Iceland, to see how companies, how people, and how leaders, they can integrate sustainability in the core business practices, how they can balance the the two things that sometimes they are not there, you know, the profitability, environmental responsibility, that some, they should be an and, but sometimes they're still, still as an or, or a nice to be.
1: This might sound pretty basic, but I, I just think it's important enough to repeat every time I get the chance to, and that's, you know, to focus on your... Core competencies, you know, as an organization or as an individual, as an organization of fo- focus on your kind of your core culture and, and the language that, that you speak, I think. And I'll, I'll say why that's so important. I think it's because so many people learn about the climate crisis that we're facing and they begin to panic and they think, what's the most important thing that the world needs to do? And instead of asking what's the most important thing i can do to help the world (laughs) achieve what it needs to achieve and so you know the great thing about building a net zero economy is that it requires all aspects of the economy if you're a software engineer if you are a you know uh someone involved in marketing if you're some No matter what, we need to change the way people think, we need to change the way that we build systems. We need to do all of this. And so what you want to figure out is how you can ensure sustainability work, right? We don't necessarily need a highly accomplished uh, software engineer to go back and get their masters in, in environmental sustainability. We need them to continue to be a highly accomplished software engineer, but implementing green software engineering principles in the scalable systems that they build. And so when you know what you're great at, what your core competency is, when as an organization, when you understand what your culture and the language that that you speak is, you know, whether you're an engineering company or a communications company or whatever, and then figuring out how to bring those to bear on the sustainability problem. If If you're a marketing company, then you should maybe be figuring out how to get in people's hearts and minds, you know, to make the right consumer choices. If you're an engineering company, you should just be building better systems. You know, like that's the thing that that we need people to be focusing on. Unfortunately, I think we often see a lot of like, you know, engineering companies that think that they need to start like being marketing companies about their sustainability credentials or whatever. You know, it's like, no, just everyone just needs to get down to the task of doing what is best for them and best for the world on achieving its net zero trajectory.
0: Thank you so much for this wonderful insight and this wonderful episode. It has been an honor and a pleasure hosting you, Lucas, and count that we will see you maybe in one year to see where you have taken Aveli and his work on getting the new generation, the best company in software, getting them from net zero from day one. Thank you so much, Lucas. Thank you. Are you satisfied after this wonderful episode? Let's continue together our sustainability journey